0: What a difference a week makes. Welcome to the first Brexit Means podcast where we might begin to be able to tell you what Brexit means. I say might because the dust is still very much raining down on last week's historic divorce agreement. But no matter how much various parties would like to obscure it, the outlines are a good deal clearer than they were. So with me, Dan Roberts, to rake our fingers through the dust and poke at what lurks beneath are two Guardian experts with front row seats. Jennifer Rankin joins us from Brussels, and Lisa O'Carroll has just literally this second stepped off a plane from Dublin. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming on, Jennifer. Uh, I hope your passage was frictionless, Lisa. Did you, uh, did you land Okay. Uh, We did, despite a a, a speck of snow still at the airport, it's all fine. Excellent, good. So before asking you both for the view from outside Westminster, um, let's just recap on what's been going on inside the bubble. Uh, Plenty will disagree, including, I hope, both of you, but I'm going to take presenter's prerogative to list what I see as three key lessons from Friday. The first is that Theresa May has squared the circle that we've been talking about all year on this podcast by caving in. Her three red lines on the divorce bill, the ECJ and regulatory harmonisation have, to borrow that phrase from Jacob Rees-Mogg, faded to a very soft pink. The key phrase is full regulatory alignment. It may only, as she stresses, be a backstop. It may technically only apply to the Northern Ireland peace process. But this is the language of a much softer Brexit than many feared. My second observation, though, is that the Prime Minister has bravely stood up to the diehards in her party. Mogg, Liam Fox and the rest of the Brexit henhouse have gone uncharacteristically quiet. Boris Johnson was literally exiled to Iran. And weekend attempts by David Davis and Michael Gove to suggest the climb down was only temporary have, for the time being, been shot down by a newly confident Number 10. It's been left to the likes of Nigel Lawson to alone accuse the PM of kneeling before Europe. But my final point is that much is still to play for. Trade talks probably won't start until March. No deal might be less likely, but the choice is still between Norway and Canada, and it's a big one. And the Brexiteers will only go quiet for so long. So all in all, there's lots for the Brexit Means podcast to talk about. First, let's turn to Lisa. So uh, most importantly, I wanted to ask you about the issues that Westminster Tories haven't been talking about, Lisa. You've been doing some important reporting on citizens' rights, particularly UK citizens in Europe. What are they worried has been left out of this deal?
2: Yeah, they were kind of left out of the narrative last week when all the focus was on the Irish border and the DUP and how um, the DUP had humiliated the Tories just as they were about to get their Christmas gift. So I spoke to the EU citizens over the weekend, conscious that we had covered The Guardian, had made it kind of a core subject that we were covering. And they really, really are angry. They are alarmed. and um, The big thing for them is that they had, you know, long before the Tories and Labour had got into the sort of weeds of Brexit, that they had been campaigning and had meetings with the European Commission. And our own coverage had led to an investigation by the European Parliament. This is all last year. So they felt quite confident that the European Commission was on their side. And to their alarm the European Commission made on a promise that they had made in May in their own guidelines that they would have freedom of movement. And for European citizens in the UK, that isn't really an issue because as European citizens, they will continue to have freedom of movement because they hold an EU passport. So for British citizens who have settled in um, Germany, was one place that I alighted on because I'd gone over there. Um, they feel that they're now landlocked. So you've got lawyers, accountants who cross borders to do business meetings or to manage engineers I met from Scotland who are managing projects, wondering who they can recruit. German companies who are um, concerned that if they employ British staff, will they be able to send them to project manage six months in Scandinavia? These were like, firm examples that I was given. So they're very alarmed that the freedom of movement um, Uh, it wasn't a guarantee but it was a promise that that was was removed and that it was forgotten about and Jean-Claude Juncker and to some extent some of the European parliamentarians have said that they had guaranteed the rights of EU citizens the 5 million of them Um, so there's a lot to play for yet and I think um, the the voice of the British in Europe isn't as strong as the EU citizens in in the UK Um, partly because I think the British media consider that's, the majority of, of uh, British citizens in Europe are pensioners down at the cost of their salary, and they get a bit of a hard, uh, you know, a bad press. Um, so, a lot to play for.
0: Jennifer, what do you think um, of this issue? Will it come back onto the agenda, or has that moment passed, do you think?
1: No, I think it, it certainly hasn't passed. And and I think when you look across the, the whole of the, the divorce deal that's being done, they're actually still. Many outstanding issues on uh, on eu citizens on on uh, on uh, Ireland and on all sorts of other issues the ECj as well, but specifically on citizens, it is interesting that um, Giva hofstadt the um, the european parliament's brexit coordinator he's actually pushing for more on this and specifically on this issue of onward movement he would like this guaranteed for british citizens in the eu and if and when you look at the commission 's own detailed working, they also say they want to tie up um, some other issues notably they talk about the right of future spouses and partners to join an EU national who will be in the UK so at the moment the deal means that if you if you meet a your, your Mr. or Ms. Right in, in the future beyond um, the time of the agreement, you wouldn't be able to, to bring that person to the UK so that you would like to go back to this question as well. So on this area of citizens, we could see more on that in, in the coming months. And it's definitely um, not the last word.
0: Yes. And what did they make more generally of um, some of the wobbling in London over the weekend, some of these attempts to perhaps walk away from the deal a bit? I saw Guy Verhofstadt was also uh, tabled an amendment this morning to the Parliament's response saying that it was all risking undermining good faith Could, could they still kick up rough about this at the council meeting later this week
1: Yes, well, I think uh, diplomats have been deeply unimpressed by what David Davis said at the weekend when he suggested that the agreement reached last week was was something less than binding and some and suggested perhaps that he didn't uh, he didn't take it so seriously. I noticed this morning that the German Europe Minister Michael rossi arriving for a meeting in Brussels, he said this was surprising and that you have to play and say the same thing that you do in Brussels, that you have to say the same thing in London as well. So this has um, gone down very badly, and you've seen and the language on the 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 summit communique that ministers are preparing for the EU leaders summit at the end of this week you've seen that language tighten up um, with a a sort of clear message that the UK has to stick to what's been agreed so far if it does hope to progress to get this final withdrawal treaty which will include all the details about trade that the British government is is so desperate to secure.
0: Yes it almost seems like it was counterproductive with with a little bit of humour how quickly Davis was forced back out to the uh, studios on. Monday morning to reverse everything he'd said on Sunday morning, uh, and I wonder whether that was perhaps Downing Street beginning to fear that they could end up shooting themselves in the foot if they weren't careful.
1: Yes, it feels like exactly that. That Davy Davis did shoot himself in the foot, and, and and Downing Street had to do a quick about turn. and And you you were making the point earlier about Theresa May sort of pleading or some of the the hardline Brexiteers, the people who are who are most ardent um, supporters of Leave, but I actually wonder whether they know that she has stood up to them, because I think the UK government has been sort of treading a very fine line and and giving the impression that the the parts of this deal, notably the part on Ireland, maybe uh, you know are not the final word and and are not the um, not going to take the the UK into real sort of regulatory alignment with the eu but the eu draws the opposite conclusion they're taking that um, promise very seriously yeah. so i wonder whether the the, the political argument it, it seems to me is is yet to come and Theresa may will have many more sort of battles with uh with her backbench
0: skeptics such as jacob reese and others i'm sure so lisa how did it go down in ireland to see davis going all wobbly on this before the ink had even dried
2: Yes, exactly. As Jennifer said, it went down very, very badly. I mean, I've been there for 10 days continuously in and out of government buildings on briefings on the record, off the record. They even provided drinks with the Obracar for the press last week. So, you know, we were, we were immersed in the whole Brexit thing last week. And it was extraordinary. On Friday, when she had done the deal, we got some very good information from the Dublin side, which was, among other things, that There was a feeling in Europe that um, the the unity in Europe was extraordinary and that Britain had underestimated that. And in the morning, Leo Vradkar had been asked about how politically, um, how, you know, he talked about a cast iron iron guarantee and he was was asked whether this was bulletproof and he said yes, it was. But they did and they were at pains to say that this was a political statement, however, that it was made solemnly, that it would form the parameters. Um, uh, which would produce the guidelines for phase two negotiations. And in that respect, it was very, very significant. And there's been lots of discussion about paragraph 49 and 50 and paragraph five. Paragraph five is where you have those seven words. Nothing is agreed, till so everything is agreed. And there's another paragraph, which seems to contradict 49 and 50, which are the island clauses offering alignment north and south and east and west. But I read this morning there was an interesting piece in the Irish Times by a professor of law, which said, it will be up to the European Court of Justice who will decide whether there will be legal effect to this agreement on Friday. And he drew attention to the specificity of the language in paragraph 49, which is about north-south. Alignment and east-west between Ireland and the UK in paragraph 15 said that the specificity, specificity would trump the generality. Yes. So yeah, it was very interesting. And as, as you know, um, David Davis remarks on Sunday on the Andrew Marr show, you know, drew the ire of the Irish government, who were made the unusual um, move of putting out a statement saying yes. that
0: they they and the EU will be sticking the British to to the promise. I think that's right. I mean, I think for what it's worth that there was a kernel of truth to what Davis was saying. He was making the point that this is phase one agreement, that this is part of a roadmap towards a broader agreement. And therefore um, the, the British aren't under any obligation to deliver on all these things unless they get the broader agreement. But uh, but where I think you and and the, the Irish Times writer and others are absolutely right is that um, there was some very concrete language in that first phase agreement, and if the Brits start to unpick that, they're not going to get any more.
2: The other the other really interesting thing over which which um, may not have been picked up as uh, strongly on Friday was that. Um, we know from uh, briefings that we had, the paragraph 49, which is the one that the DUP objected to, was not changed. Not one common, not one full stop was changed in that. And what the DUP instead got was the insertion of paragraph 50, which which promised East-West. Um, mm. So I was, I was uh, um, reminded um, of, you know, Charles, Charles de Gaulle um, proclamation that nations have no friends, they only have interests. And this really applies here, because Ireland's Big interest is east-west. So Leo Varadkar mm. has actually got far more than he wanted—not just the north-south promise of north-south alignment, but east-west, which is really, really important to Ireland because Britain, the UK, is Ireland's number one export um, market, uh, 50 billion a year uh, in both directions. So yes. I think going forward, Varadkar's statement that Britain would not have a closer friend than Ireland is really significant, um, and that will play well into into. Um, the next set of negotiations as opposed to the sniping and the animosity and the enmity and the toxicity of last week and the week before. I think that would be quickly forgotten about.
0: Jennifer, what do you think of this question of regulatory alignment and where it goes next?
1: It does feel like the can has been kicked down the road on this point because the the EU still... um, sound enormously sceptical about all the UK's ideas for avoiding a hard border without regulatory alignment. At least, if, listening again to this this famous David Davis interview on Andrew Marr last week, he was still talking about technology as the way to, to solve the border issue which would allow the UK to, to have a hard Brexit, leaving the customs union but avoid a hard border. But then the, you still hear people in the EU are hugely sceptical about this and, and in, an internal commission report pointed to this that they just don't see how it can be done so although Michel barnier the chief negotiator he's very polite or was very polite when asked about this in the press conference it still feels that the uk side are no further ahead into um coming up with a solution that is going to to solve this issue so i think we're we we could see again ireland will be a a very tense point in the negotiations to come when it sort of when it hits home that uh, if the uk wants to leave the um the customs union it can't be done with, without a without a hard border so that does and with the triple lock in the uh, the, the agreement on friday that does uh, drastically limit the options and that changes the kind of brexit that's on offer
0: but i know that this is a bit of a role reversal because normally jennifer it's, you, it's me being gloomy and you're usually glass half full but i i got to, to take issue with that for a second though don't you think that some of this is just face saving by the Brits. I mean, Davis also gave this big speech in the Commons on Monday where he seemed to um, describe the fudge as being one of, we don't have to have their rules, but we'll have our rules that achieve the same effect so basically the ends will be the same but how we get there might look a bit different and i just took that to mean basically they're going to be rule takers we're going to be in all practical terms part of the single market but we just won't admit it because it's too embarrassing isn't i mean isn't that where the fudge might lie
1: but then you, you do have to you do have to reach a decision point on the customs union because the eu will insist on that they will not let the uk leave the customs union but leave an open border that will allow all the you know the, the chlorinated chickens and and any other uh, produce that doesn't meet EU standards to, to flood through that porous border.
0: But we will have a customs union. We will, we will. They will, they will try to negotiate a customs agreement with the EU.
1: Yes, but I, I mean, again, the, the sort of a customs union will, could end up looking very close to the customs union. There isn't there, exactly. there isn't an exactly. infinite number yes. of, of models.
2: I mean, what, what has become um, highlighted in the last week or so uh, is how important it's standards are and it's regulation around standard standards. Standards of chicken is an example and that's where the, um, the trickiness lies. It's not so much the whether there's a technological solution um, for lorries and people crossing the border. There will be cameras, you know, we, you have them in Dover, you can have pre-customs clearance miles and miles away from, the, from um, the border. The issue is the standard of the food in those trucks. At the moment, non-EU freight um, has got to be inspected on border post-inspection. Um, you know, in the east of Europe. Um, I spoke to um, some, a company in the Thames who do the inspections for goods that come in from China and they have uh, enormous um, sort of uh, sheds, refrigerated sheds, sheds, which will protect the perishable goods. Um, but they can inspect and they would have to go right into the back of the lorry to find not just smuggled goods, but to find that the, the chicken at the back is the same standard as the chicken in the front. Um, that, it, that it isn't, you know, counterfeit um, that it isn't below quality, and I think that's where the problem lies. Um, and it, it, it will be interesting to see, you know, where Britain, where Britain's interest lies. Are they getting that FTA deal with with America, or are they keeping alignment on standards with Europe?
0: Yes, but do you think we have, Lisa? I mean. It- Don't you think in some senses we have Leo Varadkar and Arlene Foster to thank for at least flushing some of these issues out into the open? I mean, we've been worrying for months now that this kind of conversation wouldn't even take place in phase one. But at least the Ireland issue has brought all this to the the fore, hasn't it?
2: I think what the Ireland issue has done is really interesting. It's not about Brexit. It's about Theresa May facing down the DUP. She is in a very, very uncomfortable um, coalition, um, so to speak, with the DUP. And... um, she went ahead with that deal without their full approval. Arlene Foster on Friday told her that, or late on Thursday night, told her that she didn't think that she should go ahead with this, but Theresa May did, and I think that, that's what's interesting about the last few weeks is that the Brexiteers were face down on the exit bill and the DUP on the border, um, and I think it would be very hard for the DUP to come back and whine as they did over um, this border issue um, uh, when Ireland comes up again, as Jennifer says, it, it most definitely will.
0: Jennifer, last word for you. What do you think the lessons of the last week have been from the perspective of Brussels?
1: I think the, perhaps the most um, the most striking thing is it just shows you how much the EU has managed to shape the the negotiation so far. The EU decided at the beginning it would like to run the negotiations in this way that it wanted to get the UK's agreement on on three key areas of citizens, Ireland, and money, and. The UK said no. We don't want to do it that way. That is flexible, and we we have a, we think we should agree it all at the end. But the EU model is exactly what has prevailed, and I think that's what we will see over the the, the next year as well. It's also striking as well that this these were very much the messages that um the UK's former ambassador to the EU was was taking back home to the government about a year ago that the negotiations uh, uh would, would be would be very difficult for the UK to, to it would be difficult for them to set the agenda and uh, it would be impossible to negotiate a, a bespoke transition agreement. We haven't talked much about transition so uh today, but that's going to be a, a really live issue in, in the coming months when I think politically it hits home that the UK during any transition period will still be part of EU structures, will still be forced to t- uh, obey EU rules, but this time without any say whatsoever. So I think I mean, for me, the lesson of the last week is just how how little the, the UK has been able to uh, to to live up to all those those promises that we heard f- during the campaign and uh, in the early phases of the Brexit uh, process.
0: Yes, doesn't quite fit on the side of a bus, does it? Um, Well, that's it for this week. We're going to have to leave it there. But many, many thanks to Lisa and Jennifer for joining us. Um, Next week, we're going to be looking back at the year as a whole in Brexit. So if you have any questions about that, uh, I imagine there are a few, email us at brexitmeansattheguardian.com. Please subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. Just search for Guardian Podcasts. Till next week, I've been Dan Roberts and the producer is Rowan Slaney and this was Brexit means. Thank you for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com/podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.